I'd like to pray, and before I do, let me say that if the things I say in this prayer reflect something of the desire and burden of your own heart, let me just encourage you at the end of the prayer to heartily exclaim, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word, we would wish to know something of what those two brothers felt on the road to Emmaus as the Lord himself expounded the scriptures to them. They said that their hearts burned within them as they heard the scriptures opened up to them. May that be our experience this morning. Would you be so kind, Father, by your spirit to open up the Bible to us and to mold us and to shape us and to change us according to your word. For we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, please turn in your Bibles back to Luke's Gospel in chapter 1. God willing, on Thursday, uh, my wife is going to be induced, and God willing, we will welcome our third child. Uh, So to this point, we've named two of our children. Uh, The name of uh, our firstborn son is Dominic, and um, the, the method by which we arrived at the names of our kids uh, it was very unromantic, very prosaic. Um, Dominic was sort of to tip my hat to my Italian heritage. Uh, we really wanted to have a son we could call Nico, and really we just like the way the name sounds. So that was the, the logic there. Uh, after being called Dominique for the thousandth time, I don't think Dom will be pleased to have that name. But anyway, that's the name that he has. And then we have a daughter, Camden, C-A-M-D-E-N, and again, fairly prosaic fashion. We were driving in England. There was a town called Camden. We thought that sounds nice, and we like Cammy for short, and so we named her Camden. And God willing, we will name this little boy Judah um, because it's a biblical name and because it means praise, praise to God, um, but also because we like the way it sounds. Uh, And I don't know how you arrived, for those of you who have children, how you arrived at the names for your children. In our day, it's just very common to kind of pick names you like, and the husband and wife look at each other, and okay, that sounds good, and that's the name the child gets, or perhaps you derive the names of your kids from a family name, or something like that, or some figure in the Bible. Uh, You don't have to read very long in the Bible, though, to appreciate uh, that names have a very great significance. The naming of a child, or the naming of a place, or something like that, has great significance. And when we turn to Luke 1, and we... Uh, read about the naming of Jesus and the names that would be given to him. Of course, we recognize there are a number of significant things that are conveyed in those names. That also holds true with John, John the Baptist. As I want to remind you of what we looked at a couple weeks ago, the scene where Zechariah, uh, the priest, is in the temple and he's performing the incense offering. The angel Gabriel appears to him. Uh, He comes to make an announcement on behalf of the Lord. And he tells Zechariah that his wife, Elizabeth, who's quite advanced in age, has been barren, uh, is going to bear a son, and they're to call this son John. That's the name he's to be given. God himself, through the angel, has told Zechariah, you will name this son John. And now you know, of course, uh, Zechariah doubts the angel. Uh, He says, how am I to know that this is going to happen? Is there some sort of sign you're going to give me? Because I'm not sure this will really take place. Um, My wife is well advanced in years. And um, the angel uh, uh, tells John that until, excuse me, tells 
Zechariah that until his son John is born, Zechariah is going to be mute. He's not going to be able to speak. Well, now when we get to the scene where the longed-for son is finally coming and the baby is born, uh, we read in our passage in Luke chapter 1 that uh, on the eighth day he's to be circumcised according, according to the Jewish tradition. And of course, it's on that day typically when the child would be given its name. Uh, so Zechariah is still mute. He's not able to speak. Uh, the neighbors are there to, I guess, witness the occasion. And Elizabeth says that the child's name will be John. You remember Elizabeth had faith. Elizabeth believed what God would do. She says the child's name will be John. Now, in those days, the child did not have its name until the father of the family uh, said it was going to be so, actually gave the child that name. So the neighbors looking on thought, well, that's a strange name. Why would they choose that name? Shouldn't he be named Zechariah after his father? And they looked to Zechariah, who, remember, at this time is still mute, and he writes down on a tablet... Uh, not his name will be John, he says his name is John. And it's interesting at that point, that's the moment when his tongue is loosed, he's no longer mute, and he's able to speak. And I do think in, in, in this event, this account of the naming of John and the way in which it took place, we're to see something of uh, Zechariah's faith. He's learned his lesson. Uh, he probably learned his lesson right after he was made mute and certainly after Elizabeth became pregnant. But now as an expression of his faith, he's saying, I'm going to do what God through the angel commanded me to do. And he writes down on a tablet, his name is John. This is the name that God had given. The name John is derived from a Hebrew word, which means something like uh, God will be gracious or God will show favor. Uh, that's the meaning of John's name. And that's how John is given uh, his name in this passage. And immediately Zechariah is no longer mute. He's able to speak. And what's the first thing he does, at least according to this passage? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And Zechariah the priest prophesies. Now, over the past few weeks in our Advent series, we've been considering the gospel, particularly how it's conveyed in the first two chapters of Luke by different individuals. So two Sundays ago, we considered the gospel according to Gabriel and his announcement both to Zechariah and then to Mary. Last week, we considered the gospel according to Mary, the young virgin girl, and the Magnificat, the song that she sang about what God was bringing about through the child in her womb. This morning, we're going to consider the gospel according to Zechariah, looking at the prophecy that Zechariah gives in verses 68 through 79. Uh, so what is the gospel according to Zechariah? I have three short summary statements derived from these verses that will frame our time this morning. What is the gospel according to Zechariah? First of all, that the promised Messiah has arrived. That the promised Messiah has arrived. And I'm really working with the first half of the prophecy here, verses 68 through 75. So let's read those verses again together. Zechariah says, and for all we know, these were the very first words out of his mouth after his tongue was loosed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness 
and righteousness before Him all our days. God is fulfilling all kinds of promises in the coming of the Messiah, some of which we've looked at already. Two of the promises that Zechariah highlights in this prophecy is God's promise to David and God's promise to Abraham. And indeed, the last two weeks, we've looked more closely at those promises as they're given in the Old Testament, the covenant that God entered to Uh, entered into with Abraham. We looked at that somewhat last week. That's recorded for us in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. In those chapters, God articulates to Abraham uh, that he is going to give to him and to his descendants land that they will inherit forever. He's going to give him an offspring through whom the nations of the world will be blessed and through whom he will establish a people's And he's going to bring blessing, blessing to Israel, but blessing also to all the families of the world, blessing to all the nations. And then there was the promise later on, uh, some 900 to 1,000 years later, given to David. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. There God enters into a covenant with David, and the, the essence of that promise is that after David dies, there's going to come a time when God is going to raise up a son of David, the seed of David. And, and this son, his house, his throne, his kingdom will be established forever. And he will rule the world without end in righteousness and truth and justice and peace forever and ever. And it is these promises that Zechariah is also highlighting in his prophecy here. Zechariah starts with the announcement that God has raised up, verse 69, a horn of salvation in the house of David. He's raised up a horn of salvation. Now, what do you think that phrase means? You think of a horn of salvation. You might think of a a military metaphor that doesn't really play well today because warfare doesn't take place in the same way as it used to throughout the centuries. But in armies, you would have like a bugle or a horn or something like that that would direct the army or would, would communicate certain messages to the army that would rise above the din of warfare and the horn would be heard. That's not how this phrase is being used here, though. Actually, the horn of salvation, the horn idea, is um, symbolizing the horns of like a ram or a goat or something like that, uh, which in most cultures throughout history has been a symbol of strength. Uh, A goat or a ram would use those horns to penetrate some kind of barrier or to bring some kind of blunt force to some sort of object. And that's why, actually, uh, throughout many ancient cultures, if you study like, like warfare and armor and things like that, often there are horns on helmets or horns on breastplates or something like that. It's a symbol of strength and power and deliverance. And the Bible frequently uses this language of God appearing on behalf of Israel as a horn of salvation again and again as a symbol of God's might and power and salvation and deliverance for His people. One such passage is found in 2 Samuel 22. I just want to read a few verses from that chapter. It's actually in 2 Samuel 22 that David is celebrating his victory over Saul and over all his enemies. And it's actually in 2 Samuel 22 that we have uh, duplicated in its entirety Psalm 18. So if you read Psalm 18, there's an introduction at the top of Psalm 18 that says this is the psalm David wrote or sang uh, after God had delivered him out of the hands of all his enemies, even the hands of King Saul. That's actually recorded for us in two places, Psalm 18 and in 2 Samuel 22. And there we read in 2 Samuel 22:1 that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. 
and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. You hear that language David is using, rock, refuge, Savior, deliverer, power and might and salvation is what's in mind here. These are the words that surround that phrase, the horn of salvation. God appears as a horn of salvation and deliverance for His people. Zechariah is saying that through this promised seed of David, God is bringing about deliverance and salvation for His people. God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of His servant David. Now look with me at verse 71. Why has He raised up this horn of salvation? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. As I said, there were many promises in the Old Testament related to the coming of the Messiah. One that is repeated again and again and again is this promise given to Israel that God would deliver them from their enemies. You'll especially see this prominently in the Psalms. Uh, David's often personally looking to God to give him deliverance from his enemies, but also on behalf of the nation, he's asking God to give the nation deliverance from their enemies. And in fact, if you look carefully at the original promise that God entered into with David, the covenant that God entered into with David, there is contained this promise that the coming son, the seed of David, the servant that's raised up in the house of David, would be God's agent to deliver his people from all their enemies. So in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 9, we read this. As God is giving the promise to David of the coming son, he says this, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. You hear the language there. It's this promise to David that forms messianic expectation more than just about any other passage in the Old Testament. God's going to give a son to David. He's going to reign on his father's throne forever. And one of the things this son will accomplish is that he'll deliver God's people from all their enemies. So what does Zechariah mean? What do you think is in his mind and heart as he prophesies about Israel being saved from her enemies and from the hand of all who hate her. What do you think he actually intends to convey, filled with the Holy Spirit as he prophesies? Now, without getting too bogged down here, I think this petition, the expectation of fulfillment to this promise, operates on two planes of meaning. There's at least two things I think Zechariah means as he uses those words. First of all, Zechariah would almost certainly have in mind some level of national and political deliverance for the nation of Israel. It's not clear what all Zechariah expected that the Messiah would do, but if his expectations are in line with those of most Old Testament saints, he surely expected that the Messiah would be some kind of national deliverer. Uh, he, would, he would bring salvation and deliverance for the nation from their enemies, and perhaps Zechariah is thinking in particular of their Roman overlords. I think that's part of what Zechariah expects and how he uses this promise. But then there's a second level of meaning, a second level of meaning to this statement from Zechariah. He does not only have national and political deliverance in mind, but Zechariah surely has in view spiritual deliverance also. 
in these events and through the Messiah, God is going to bring salvation and deliverance from sin, from Satan and from death and from judgment. God is going to put to flight all of Israel's spiritual enemies, and God's going to accomplish a far deeper salvation, a far richer salvation than simply deliverance from some kind of political oppression. And I think we see this clearly in the context of the prophecy itself. If you look at verse 77, now is Zechariah is prophesying about who his son John would be. He said that John would give knowledge of salvation to his people in or by the forgiveness of their sins, the spiritual deliverance, a salvation from sin, a salvation from spiritual enemies, a salvation from spiritual darkness and from Satan and from judgment and from death. God is going to give to his people the forgiveness of sins. I think if you were to sit down with Zechariah, and you were to ask Zechariah, what does it mean to be saved? You're prophesying about salvation. God's going to raise up a horn of salvation in the house of David. What will salvation mean for us? I do think that Zechariah would say he is going to put to flight the enemies of Israel. He's going to bring about some national deliverance for us. But then perhaps with tears in his eyes or with the warmest of smiles, he would say, but, but the deliverance will be far deeper than that. It'll be far more significant than that. To be saved is to have your sins forgiven. And the salvation that God is going to work for us through His servant, the son of David, is going to bring about an end of our sins and the end of the judgment that is due to all those who sin against God. God is going to bring about deliverance for us, spiritual salvation for us. God is going to give to us the forgiveness of sins. Now look with me at verse 72, reading on, this servant, the son of David, will show mercy promised to our fathers. Remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah, like Mary, sees in the coming of Jesus the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. Uh, I'd love to say more about that promise and summarize it again, but you can listen to the previous message for that. I just want to emphasize here what Zechariah says about the outcome of God's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. What's going to be the outcome? Once God fulfills all these promises, what's the status quo going to be? Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Zechariah envisions an era of peace and righteousness where God's people will be free to serve Him undisturbed and unharassed by their enemies. So what do we have in the first part of this prophecy? Zechariah announces that the promised Messiah has come the horn of salvation in the house of David has come, and he will bring salvation for his people, deliverance from enemies, both national and spiritual, and he's going to usher in an era of peace and righteousness. So what is the gospel according to Zechariah? First of all, that the promised Messiah has arrived. Now secondly, that, the, that salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. The promised Messiah has arrived now the salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. So Zechariah turns now to address his newborn son. 
his eight-day-old son, John. And he says in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. There's two things we should observe here in these words. First of all, we should appreciate that from the beginning, it was announced that Jesus' mission was one of salvation. So here's John, the baby. Here's Zechariah prophesying over John. What's John going to do? He's going to go before the Lord. He's going to prepare a way for the Lord. He's going to make for the Lord a people prepared. But, but what's he supposed to convey to them? We read he's to give them knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. Now that phrase, knowledge of salvation, I don't think it means that simply John will tell them about how to get saved or something like that. That he's going to give them data and material about what salvation entails. Now, certainly he does give them that sort of content and that sort of material. But I think the language is such that, that we're to understand John is actually going to be the instrument of God by which people are brought into the experience of salvation. Like they will have saving knowledge. Like they will come to know the Lord. It's not just that data is going to be put into their minds. But through him, people will come into the knowledge, the experience of salvation. This is what John does in preparing a way for the Lord. He is bringing these people that he would minister to as he prepares the way for the Lord. He's bringing them into a knowledge of salvation. He was to announce the coming salvation in Jesus. And this highlights, doesn't it, uh, that fundamentally, Jesus coming into the world was a mission of salvation. Christ Jesus came into the world for a purpose, and that purpose was to achieve actual salvation for people. Why did Jesus come into the world? I can think of no clearer statement uh, than the text I asked the kids of our church to memorize this Advent season, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? Why is it that God became incarnate? Why is it that God sent His Son into the world? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came on a mission of salvation. There's lots of things Jesus did while He was on the earth, but the best summary statement of what Jesus came into the world to do was to bring salvation to sinners. That well-known passage in John chapter 3, verse 16, conveys a similar thing. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 goes on to say, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The idea is God did not need to send His Son into the world to condemn the world. If God wished for sinners to be condemned, there's no need to send Jesus. They're condemned already. We're all damned apart from Jesus. But if that situation is going to be changed, God must act and take some kind of initiative to bring salvation for us, and that's what He does in Jesus. God sends His Son into the world, not that the world through Him might be condemned. They were condemned already but that through Him, the world might be saved. We should see in the incarnation, in the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world, His and the Father's indefatigable commitment to save His people from their sins. John had a blessed task assigned to him. He was to tell people, as we've been saying to our little kids in a way they could understand, that Jesus is coming 
that in Jesus salvation is coming. And you could imagine John the Baptist, you know, he preached out in the wilderness, he was something of a street preacher. He would stand there before great crowds and he would preach the truth that salvation was coming in Jesus. He's preparing a way for the Lord. And he's to bring these people to the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. And he's, he's preaching to them, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you repent of your sins, you'll be forgiven your sins. And you might imagine it's speculation, but perhaps some came down to the front after the service and they wanted to talk to him more about these things. And they said, this is, this is remarkable. Can we learn more about this? And perhaps John then would take them back to his home and perhaps over bread, he would open the Scriptures up to them, many of the Old Testament promises. And um, perhaps he would tell them, you know, this, this coming one, he's to be the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Remember all these lambs we've been sacrificing for all these years? That's who Jesus is going to be, so that through him we could have the forgiveness of sins. And then maybe still one or two individuals would come to him after dinner and say, can, can you talk to us more about this? I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to know how this is going to be. And perhaps then John would take them sweetly and he would tell them how it is they could have faith in Christ and trust in him. Perhaps he would even lead them in prayer. But this was his mission. This was his task, his assignment, to tell the people of Israel that salvation has come through the forgiveness of sins. But there's a second thing we learn here, still under that second heading, and that is that the essence of salvation, the essence of salvation is to have one's sins forgiven. The essence of salvation is to have one's sins forgiven. What's John to do? Look at verse 77. He's to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. What does it mean to be saved? What's the essence of salvation? We use that language a lot. You kids, I wonder if you know the answer to that question. We use certain Christian lingo, uh, certain nomenclature. I know you kids don't know what that word means. C certain words that designate certain things. We use certain words to convey certain ideas, and sometimes we could say them so often without explaining them. I, I think we're losing some people, and, and, and the meaning of these words can become unclear. So I wonder, do you children know what it means to be saved? Like, if I were to ask you that question, what would be your answer? Well, you know, of course, that we're all sinners, right? Hopefully you've been taught that. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners, and the most terrible thing about sin is that it creates between us and God this massive gap. It creates this alienation between us and God. There's this chasm, this separation between us and God, and it's brought about due to our sins. And what's worse than that is that the Bible teaches that our sins invite the wrath of God. Our sins invite the judgment of God, and that if we perish in our sins, our sins will sink us to hell. But the good news is that we can have salvation from our sins. We can be saved. Uh, the, the gap between us and God can be scaled and we can be reconciled to God. Now, how is it that this is done? The answer is it's done through the forgiveness of sins. That very thing that creates distance between us and God, makes us the enemies of God, invites the wrath of God, invites the judgment of God, our sins can be forgiven. And that's the essence of what it means to be saved. To be saved, to have salvation, is to have your sins forgiven by God Himself. The very thing that puts distance and alienation between you and God, that very thing that invites His wrath, that is removed. 
And some of the language the Bible uses to describe how this forgiveness is accomplished and what it accomplishes is just wonderful. For all those who are in Christ, their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You kids know east and west. They're different directions, right? East goes one way, west goes the other. I'm actually not sure if I have that right up here. I'm not sure where the sun is. Uh, You have east and west, right? The Bible says that our sins are removed from us so far as the east is from the west, which is a way of saying they'll never find each other ever again. Other language the Bible uses is that our sins are thrown into the depths of the ocean. The idea is you're not going to find them down there. They're gone. They're removed. They're forgiven. That's what's accomplished in salvation. And that's what Zechariah is saying here. You will bring to these people the knowledge of salvation in or by the forgiveness of sins. The essence of salvation is to have your sins forgiven. Salvation is not found principally in moral reform. It's not found in adhering to a system of religious formalism, and it's not a ten-step plan of self-help. Salvation comes only to sinful men and women through the forgiveness of their sins, and that's how the language is working here. You will have the knowledge of salvation by having your sins forgiven. It won't be primarily through political or liberation from oppression. It won't come through economic or social betterment. That's not the essence of salvation. To have your sins forgiven leading to everlasting life is the essence of salvation. And I'll just say as an aside, there are some in our day, as there have been for many years, who are advancing the idea that the essence of salvation includes the idea of economic betterment or having your social conditions improved or having every form of oppression removed from you. We should not embrace that idea. That is not what the Bible teaches about salvation. The essence of salvation is to be reconciled with God through having your sins forgiven, being justified in His sight, being made right with God, being brought into relationship with God, and being destined for eternity forever with God. That's the essence of salvation. That's not to say we shouldn't preach against various forms of oppression. That's not to say there isn't coming a day, as the song we're going to sing tonight says, when all oppression will cease. That day is coming. But the essence of salvation, what it means to be saved ultimately is to be made right with God through the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, in order to be saved, one must repent. One must go to God. One must confess. And the promise is that God is pleased to forgive all of our sins. This is the good news that Zechariah announced. This is why Jesus comes into the world, to acquaint people with the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, why is it that men and women will be forgiven? What does the text say? Look at verse 77. John is going to be that one who prepares the way of the Lord. He's going to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. John's announcement is that God will be merciful. Because God is a merciful God, we can have our sins forgiven. You remember, if you were here last week, that the mercy of God was one of the themes of Mary's song. In verse 50, she spoke of how His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Verse 54, she says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. In Zechariah's words, he says that we will be given the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because 
of the tender mercy of our God. The coming of Jesus into the world, the incarnation, Christmas, is the product of God's mercy. I said a couple of weeks ago that I enjoy the uh, sentimentalism of Christmas, and I do. You know, the Christmas trees and the lights and the songs and the hot chocolate and all those traditions, I just think they're pleasant. I think they're sweet. And I don't think there's anything wrong if you enjoy the sentimentalism of Christmas. But it is a really sad thing when the whole celebration of Christmas for Christians, or even the majority of the celebration of Christmas for Christians, gets bound up in this kind of vacuous sentimentalism. The the highest sort of spiritual experience that we arrive at in the Christmas season is looking at some sort of, you know, nativity scene, and we think, well, isn't this just so sweet? We should recognize when we look at nativity scenes, when we look at what's portrayed on the stained glass there, that in those scenes, the sweet scenes with the wise men coming and all that's going on there, God is choosing to be merciful toward wretched and hell-bound sinners, that in Christmas, in the coming of Jesus, God is acting on behalf of those who justly deserve His judgment and His wrath. Our appreciation for what's going on in those scenes of the incarnation, Christmas, the birth of Jesus, must be more than the sweetness and the tenderness of those events. God is remembering long-promised mercy. And God is choosing to be merciful to wretched sinners like you and me. Wretched sinners who belong in the lowest regions of hell, God is choosing to show mercy. And so I encourage you, make your celebration of Christmas this year a celebration of the mercy of God. That I, a sinner, who have sinned again and again and again and have lived in rebellion against God, that a sinner like me can have his sins forgiven. Not just the little respectable sins, and not just the top ten, all my sins. It's like that song we sing, um, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. All my sins forgiven through the mercy of God, through sending His Son into the world. Full atonement for all the wrong that I have done, all the wicked thoughts, all the wicked things I've said, all the wicked things my hands have done, God is showing in the birth of His Son Jesus, He's willing to be merciful to sinners like you and me. What is the gospel according to Zechariah? First of all, that the promised Messiah has arrived. Second of all, salvation has come by the forgiveness of sins. And thirdly and finally, that the light of the world has come that the light of the world has come. In the final verses of our passage this morning, the final verses of Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah now meditates in a more focused way on who the Messiah himself will be. So he's open with a general statement of blessing and praise for God fulfilling his promises. He addresses his son John, and now he looks to who the Messiah will be. We read verse 77 that John will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way 
of peace. The focus here is on light. Light that's going to shine on those who sit in darkness. The Messiah is said to be like a sunrise. The sun is coming up in the birth of Jesus, and this sunrise will visit us from on high, giving light to those who sit in darkness. Now, if you know your Old Testaments, as surely Zechariah did, you would appreciate that the Messiah has always been associated with light. The coming of the Lord's anointed, the coming of the Christ, was associated with light dawning on the world in some form or fashion. I'm just going to read three short passages from Isaiah that convey this. You get a sense of the sort of illusions and imagery that Zechariah would be working with. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that's the passage, of course, that goes on to say, For to us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. In the coming of this child, light is coming to shine on the people who sit in darkness. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, speaking of the servant of the Lord, the Lord's anointed, we read, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. And then a passage that we read last week, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Zechariah is aware That in the coming of this promised one, this horn of salvation raised up in the house of David, this promised one, in his coming, these passages are being fulfilled. Uh, Light is shining. The sun is rising. The day spring has come. Light is going to come and shine upon God's people, and it's going to be like a light for the nations. The peoples of the world will stream to this light. Moreover, this light is going to open the eyes of the blind, and it's going to set captives free, and it's going to penetrate into the corners of dark dungeons. In Jesus, the light of the world has come. And you know this right from other places, even in the Gospels. For example, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John in his prologue to his Gospel in John 1, uh, says of this coming one, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself, of course, says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will have the light of life. In Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed, the day spring has come, and the light is shining. But looking at our passage, Luke 1, verse 79, on whom will the light shine? This promised son. He's going to come like the sunrise. On whom will he shine? Verse 79, he's to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Verse 79 pictures men and women sitting in darkness, like in a dark room or something like that, sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death double picture of darkness, a shadow casts darkness, right? They're sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. That we know, right, this darkness is not just like a mental fog. 
It's, it's not just a lack of knowledge, instruction, or education, or something like that. The darkness represents something far worse and far more serious. This darkness that the peoples of the world are sitting in is sin itself. And the judgment and death that comes as the result of sin's curse. We're going to sing that song, O Holy Night, tonight. Uh, Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks, what, a new and glorious morn. Like the sun is rising up, the morn is breaking, and it's breaking on a world that lays in sin and error, pining. The world is laying in darkness, in sin, and the sun is going to shine on them. So he refers to those who sit in darkness. But, but what does that phrase mean, those who sit in darkness? What's the idea that we're to understand from those words? What's the picture? Well, you could imagine someone trapped in a dark room, and darkness is all around them. It surrounds them in some ways. They're trapped in this dark room. Darkness has them trapped, and they're fumbling around trying to find the way out. They can't do it because darkness is all around them surrounding them. What would that person need trapped in this dark room trying to find the way out? What would that person need? Well, you would need light, right? To shine into the room and to expose the pathway, the way out of the room. That's one way we could think about the imagery here. But if we did think of it in that way, we would be wrong. Because you see, the issue is not just that darkness surrounds us and is all around us. The problem is that darkness is within us. So profound is this idea that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 would actually say to these Christians who had been redeemed, who had been saved, he says, once you were darkness. Not you lived in a dark world or were surrounded by a sin curse. Well, you were darkness. And wonderfully he says, and now you are light in the Lord. But the idea here is not just that darkness makes up our environment. It is that we are in darkness. Darkness is within us. Darkness is a part of who we are. Now, why make that distinction, which I think is a biblical distinction? It's to address something that I think, an error, I think, that our world tries to teach us. And that is that fundamentally, man's fundamental problem is his environment. That really what is ailing us, what is hurting us, what harms us is that we live in a very dark world. And that our deepest, darkest problem is our surrounding environment. But you see, darkness doesn't just constitute our environment. Darkness is part of who we are. Which means the sort of redemption we need is not just redemption from our environment. It's redemption from who we are in our heart. It's redemption from the sin and darkness that resides within. Now, I know, I hope you know, that we live in a very dark world. This world is not a good place to live. We live in a very dark world. A moment's meditation would demonstrate that. Think of all the sin that prevails. The wars, the genocides, the murders, the adultery, the sexual abuse, suicides, substance abuse, the way people bite and devour one another, the way parents of children are so ready to abandon their children, the way children grow up almost from the beginning at strife with one another, 
all the tensions and heartaches, premature deaths, sicknesses, coronavirus. We live in a dark world. And the more you meditate on it and you try to enumerate the things that are wrong or broken with this world and dark about this world, the more you can enumerate just darker and darker things. But I think if you're being honest with yourself for two seconds, you will acknowledge that the deepest darkness you can find in this world is found within. When you look inward and when you are honest with yourself, what do you find rising up in your own heart? If I'm to persuade you that we live in a dark and sin-cursed world, I don't just need to tell you to look around you. You will find the deepest darkness rising up from within yourself. And for all those who know something of their own inner darkness, how beautiful is the sunrise to them? How beautiful and wonderful is Christmas to them? Like you know that that in my heart, in my soul, there is sin and darkness that invites the wrath and judgment of God. Well, how wonderful to you should the message of Christmas be? that the sun is rising in the person of Jesus, that the light of the world has come, that God is going to fulfill those ancient promises, that Jesus Christ is going to shine on the world. And the promise, John 12, 46, is that whoever has the light of the world, he or she will not remain in darkness. Isn't that extraordinary? Will not remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. All the dark things we've thought and said and done, all the death and darkness that clings to you and me, it can all be addressed. It can all be dispelled through Jesus Christ, God's Son. All my baggage, all my sin, all the wicked things that have occurred to me to do and that I have done, all those things that would sink me lower than hell itself, all that darkness can be addressed and can be done away with in God's provision of salvation, the Lord Jesus. Do you know yourself that we live in a dark world? And do you yourself have the awareness that you have sat in darkness? You have lived in darkness. You have lived under the shadow of death. Well, this is the gospel according to Zechariah, the gospel according to God's word, that in Jesus the sun rises, and that through him you can have the forgiveness of your sins, and through him you can be delivered from darkness and through death's bondage. You can be delivered through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah who comes to save sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that none of us would hide or recede into the shadows of death, the shadows of sin's darkness but that we would open our hearts wide and allow the light of the world to expose every crevice of darkness in our hearts. We pray that nothing would be hidden from your sight, but that all of us would embrace the light of the world. We thank you that you did not leave us sitting and pining in sin and darkness, that you did not leave us in the shadow of death, that you did not allow us to remain condemned forever but you have sent your Son into the world to save the world, that all those sinners who turn to you in repentance and faith can be changed and saved and have their sins forgiven and can walk in the light even as he is in the light. Do that for all of us. 
We pray, Father, that none of us would resist his call, that none of us would resist his saving work, that all of us would put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ who is born to us. May we find our salvation and rest in him. We thank you for the promise that there is coming a day when we, being delivered from all of our enemies, can serve you forever in holiness and righteousness and in truth forever. Hasten the coming of that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.